turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. And our text, as a little bit of a change of pace, is just five verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. And the title of today's lesson is The Marks of Christian Friendship. The Marks of Christian Friendship. So if you're able to, please stand as we read God's word. And I'm actually going to start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 55, and we'll continue into chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 55, it reads, Now when Saul saw David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. And the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out whenever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the eyes of all the people and also in the eyes of Saul's servants." Please be seated. Well, in the last two weeks, we had covered the story of David and Goliath, perhaps one of the most beloved stories in the Old Testament. And today, we're going to look at perhaps the most beloved friendship that is recorded in the Old Testament, and it is the friendship of Jonathan and David. And you would think that as Christians today, that friendships should always be plentiful, easily accessible. I mean, think with me, as Christians, we have so much in common, right? We're united in Christ. We have one faith, one hope, one God. But sadly, friendships today are rare. Perhaps you have even been attending church for some time and you feel that you have yet to find a good Christian friend. So this morning, I want to look at these first five verses of 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to find in these five verses 10 marks of Christian friendship. We're going to see what are, what are the characteristics of a good friend. What are the attributes of a good Christian friendship? And the goal here as we look in these first five verses is not to learn how to find a good friend, 
but to be a good friend, but to be a good friend. So we're going to jump right in. So the first mark of Christian friendship is this. Christian friendships are unplanned. Christian friendships are unplanned. And we see this in the opening phrase of the first verse. Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul. So as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, we read these five verses. Now, this is not a situation you and I would typically think of where a friendship would develop. During this recent military encounter that the Israelites had with the Philistines, I'm sure finding a new friend was not forefront in Jonathan's mind. But we learn, not just in Scripture, but even in everyday life, that friendships develop unexpectedly. They appear without warning. Friendships often are not premeditated. They're not planned. And in fact, when you think with me with this friendship that begins to develop in chapter 18, these Christian friendships or the Christian friendship between David and Jonathan are unexpected for at least three reasons. First, again, there's unexpected timing. This you don't think of as a time that right after a battle has ended that a friendship would develop. But second, it's an unexpected pairing. Like think with me that David was a commoner. He was a, a lowly shepherd. Jonathan is the crown prince. David is a young teenager, not even old enough to be conscripted into the army of Israel. Jonathan was quite a bit older, old enough to have years of military experience and to be set as a commander over hundreds, if not a thousand men, as we learned in previous chapters. David was from the tribe of Judah. Jonathan is from the tribe of Benjamin. And you understand that during this time, often the, the people of Israel were confined to their own tribe. They would often marry within their own tribe. Their best friends typically come from within their own family, clan, and tribe. Jonathan and, and David were from two different tribes. So there's no commonality in their tribe, their age, their social economic status, an unexpected pairing. So there's unexpected timing, there's unexpected pairing, and thirdly, there's an unexpected speed in the development of this friendship. Jonathan and David, they didn't have much time to spend together. In fact, one would even surmise they didn't have any one-on-one -on -one interaction up to this point. But after, immediately after David's victory over Goliath, Jonathan's friendship with David developed almost instantly. And I think uh, an application we can take from this is that you and I need to be prepared and ready to become a good friend and to be able to be available to make a new friend. I think it's, it's almost akin to a foster parent. Signing up to be a foster parent 
at a moment's notice could receive a phone call to receive an, an estranged child, we have to have that same type of readiness, that same type of expectation that we can be called to be a friend to someone that's unplanned, someone that's unexpected. So Christian friendships are unplanned. Second, the second mark, Christian friendship involves the soul. Christian friendship involves the soul. Look again in verse one. Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Let me read a couple of other English translations. One English translation, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship. The NIV reads, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. But I do like uh, the English translation that preserves this Hebrew expression, the soul of, of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This expression is actually used once before back in Genesis. This Hebrew expression was, is found in Genesis chapter 44, verse 30. And you remember that when Judah gave his emotional speech unknowingly to his brother Joseph, offering to become surety, for his youngest brother, Benjamin, listen to what Judah says. Judah says, when I come to your servant, my father, Jacob, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, and his life is bound up in the boy's life. That's the same Hebrew expression. His life is bound up in the boy's life. It will be that when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. So what Judah is telling uh, Joseph is that if something happens to Benjamin, my, my father will psychologically, perhaps even physically die because his life, my father's life, is bound up in Benjamin's life. This is the same expression now used to describe Jonathan when it says that Jonathan's soul is knitted together or knitted to the soul of David. Jonathan's life is bound up to David's life. Many friendships today are merely transactional. Friendships today are, are formed often purely as an alliance for mutual benefit. You're interested in what someone is posting up on social media, and so you send a friend's request. You carpool with someone, and you call that a friendship. Any symbiotic human relationship, we generally refer and just call it friendship. But Christian friendship is more than that. A Christian friendship involves the inner self. It involves the heart. It involves the soul. And so you and I, not just to prepare that a new friendship can develop unexpectedly, we need to prepare and cultivate an expectation that a new friendship will involve your soul 
and your entire inner self. There's a third mark of Christian friendship, and we again see it in verse, uh, verse one. Thirdly, Christian friendship requires love. Christian friendship requires love. Look again in verse one. Now it happened when it finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him. Jonathan loved him. This Hebrew word that's translated love, ahava, um, it's also, uh, I guess the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is where we get the Greek word uh, agapao. So agapao is the, the Greek translation of ahava. And this word that's translated love here, it predisposes a concrete inner disposition based on experience and events, and it includes a conscious act in behalf of the person that is loved. So there are two components of this word for love. This word for love here is not merely a love that shows compassion. It's not like, oh, you see someone on the street and, um, and you have compassion for them. It, it, this word is a little bit different. It, first of all, it involves an inner disposition that's based on experience or an event. Now notice here, I had just stated that Jonathan did not have any meaningful interaction with David. So what experience or event did Jonathan see that led to his inner disposition changing? Well, Jonathan heard David's voice and David's words when David volunteered to fight Goliath. He, he witnessed David's courage and his passion to see God's glory and seek his honor. Jonathan saw how the Israelite people were so inspired after David's victory and how his fellow countrymen pursued the Philistines all the way back to Gath and Ekron. So Jonathan saw that David was obviously a capable leader, a man of influence. Jonathan also saw David's humility after his victory, the way that David approached King Saul and how David always, past and present, acknowledged his dependency on God. And so these observations, these experiences that Jonathan had by what he had heard and what he saw persuaded Jonathan to make a conscious decision. So this type of love is an inner disposition based on experience, and it's a deliberate act of the will. So this love is an intentional act of the will. It's not compelled or driven by unbridled feelings or emotions. And God's love towards us works in the same way. God doesn't love you and me with a warm, fuzzy feeling. Like, you know, like how sometimes if we see a, a puppy that looks cute and we just fawn over the puppy, that's not the type of love that God has for us. God's love toward us 
is a deliberate act of his will. 1 John chapter 4, uh, scripture reads, In this is love, and not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God chooses, God chose to love us. And it's because God loves us that scripture says we ought to love one another. If there is no love, there is no friendship. And so as Christians, we are called by God to love one another, to love our neighbor. But that now leads us to the fourth mark of Christian friendship. It is not every person in this world that's our friend. The fourth mark of Christian friendship is that Christian friendship is selective. Christian friendship is selective. Look again back in verse one. Now it happened when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him. Not Jonathan loved them. Not Jonathan loved everyone. Jonathan loved him. That is, Jonathan loved David. A man after God's own heart was, is rare today, and this type of person was equally scarce during the time of Jonathan. And think with me, Jonathan would have been surrounded by hundreds, thousands of people, thousands of young men would have loved to have been the, fr the friend of the crowned prince. Everyone wanted to be Jonathan's friend. It's kind of like in today's world, uh, everyone wants to give their friendship bracelet to Taylor Swift, right? Everyone wanted to have, have a picture you know, taken together with Taylor Swift. Well, everyone during this time would have most likely desired a friendship with Jonathan. He was rich powerful, and we see here he was a God-fearing man. The text does not say here that Jonathan befriend everyone. It says that Jonathan loved David. Jonathan loved David. Let me read a couple of verses to you in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs uh, chapter 18, verse 24 says, a man of too many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Brothers and sisters, shallow, superficial friends, they generally cause trouble. But a genuine friend can sometimes be more loyal than your own brother. Proverbs chapter 22 reads, Do not befriend a man of anger. Do not come along with a man of great wrath, lest you learn his ways and take on a snare against your soul. So God is warning us that we should not befriend people of poor character and be dragged down by their influences. Proverbs 27 says, iron sharpens iron. So no man sharpens, or so one man sharpens another. So what Proverbs is saying is that there is a positive effect when you surround and interact with people of noble and worthy character. So as Christians, we are called to love all of our neighbors. 
But we are to be purposeful and selective in who we call friend. I think Jonathan may have lived a rather lonely life. He was so privileged. He, he, he could have questioned the motives of anyone who wanted to, to pander to him to want to be his friend. Jonathan was probably waiting his whole life to find someone of kindred spirit, someone who loved the Lord and was willing to risk everything for God's honor. And so when he recognized and saw David's character, he immediately sought out David's friendship. But notice here that Jonathan didn't just initiate this friendship for his own benefit. So we come to now the fifth mark of Christian friendship. Christian friendship seeks others' good. Christian friendship seeks others' good. Look again in verse 1. Now it happened when he finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Do you want a biblical definition of friendship? This is it. A friend loves the other person as his own soul. Moses defines friendship in the same way back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6, it reads, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or get this, or your friend who is as your own soul. During the time of Jonathan and David, family was preeminent. And so Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6, just opposes first-degree relatives, brother, son and daughter, spouse, with friend. And the description of a friend, the full description of a friend is your friend who is as your own soul. The word for love in, in verse 1 also most commonly when it's used of another person it's used to describe a love of a first-degree relative. It, to Abraham, to Isaac, in Genesis 22, God said, take now your son, Abraham, your only one whom you love. Same word. In Genesis chapter 25, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Same word. Uh, the story of Ruth and Naomi and that sweet relationship. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons loves you. That's the same Hebrew word for love translated here in verse 1. And so we see here that Jonathan receives David like a brother as a brother. And that leads us to the sixth mark of Christian friendship. Christian friendship shuns envy. Christian friendship 
shuns envy. Look now in verse 2. And Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Saul took him that day. And other English translations say that Saul kept David. But the true essence of this word is that Saul takes David. It's to, the verb is, means to take, to grasp, to seize. And it should immediately remind us of what was prophesied in, back in chapter 8 in what a king would do. Remember Samuel was warning the Israelites, you really want a king? Remember, the king will what? Take your sons and appoint them for himself in his chariots. So, so Saul takes David. But notice what it says in the second half of this verse. Saul takes him that day, and Saul did not let him return to his father's house. Back in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, verse 15, before David's battle with Goliath, the text described, described that David went back and forth from Saul and Gibeah to shepherd his father's flocks at Bethlehem. So he went back and forth. He was commissioned by Saul to be the musician, his personal musician. He was Saul's armor bearer. But he went back and forth between, you know, the palace in Gibeah down to his hometown, and he was working two jobs. Remember that? But now David is taken by Saul to be a permanent resident of his household. David is not allowed here anymore to return to his father's house because he was now a member of Saul's house. David, in essence, had become a permanent member of Saul's family. And this is very important. He was not just a permanent member of Saul's royal court because one historian notes that royal court members were still allowed to go back to their homes. David's house was no longer Jesse's house. A transfer of allegiance has now been forced from Jesse, the house of Jesse, to the house of Saul. So in a sense, Saul had brought David in to be a part of his family. Now, Saul didn't adopt David, you remember he'll later, to fulfill his promise, give one of his daughters in hand in marriage to David. So David will soon become Saul's son-in-law. But, but Saul didn't adopt David so that David would receive inheritance. But, Saul, but David becomes a member of Saul's family. Uh, some of you who have pets, and not to demean pets, but some of you have a, have a dog or maybe even a cat. You might feel that since your cat or dog lives with you, is a part of your house, that your dog or your cat is a part of your family. So it's in that sense, you wouldn't let me take your dog, right? With, without some reason. 
because your cat and your dog is a part of your family. So David now becomes a permanent part of Saul's family. But notice here, you may read verse 2. In fact, many people read verse 2 and say, why is verse 2 in here? It actually breaks the flow between verse 1 and verse 3. And I think the reason why verse 2 is in here is because it shows that Jonathan accepts David into the household with no hint of jealousy, no trace of envy. Jonathan had every reason to be envious of David. Jonathan, after he single-handedly helped Israel win in their victory battle over the Philistines back in chapter 14, you remember what was his father's reaction? His father wanted to kill Jonathan because, John, because Saul had a vow that no one should eat anything until sunset. Jonathan didn't know of this vow or this oath. He ate a little bit of honey because he was so exhausted. And his father wanted to kill Jonathan. And it wasn't for God's people intervening that Jonathan's life was, was spared. So Jonathan had his own victory. He had a great victory and his dad wanted to kill him. And now here's some, some stranger from another tribe who has this victory. And now Saul is lavishing, bringing him into the family. And here you are, the firstborn son. What else would you think? Like, dad, you're, you're treating an outsider better than you're treating me. David will be Israel's future king, Israel's next king. It will not be Jonathan. David will be popular and adored by God's people, much more so than Jonathan will ever be. If anyone would be tempted to show envy, it would be Jonathan. But there's not a hint of it not a trace of it. Brothers and sisters, envy will destroy friendship. Friendship cannot coexist with envy. Let's look at a seventh mark. Seventh mark of Christian friendship. Christian friendship involves commitment. Christian friendship involves commitment. Look down verse three. Then Jonathan cut a covenant with David. Now a covenant is basically an agreement now during this time. So this is a thousand years later than Abraham, the time of David. So during this time, a covenant now is generally an agreement that two people make where they promise either to do something for each other or to not do something toward each other. And notice here that this covenant was initiated by Jonathan. It's not initiated by David. It's initiated by Jonathan because Jonathan is in a position of authority. He was superior in status at this time to David. One person says, David is clearly Jonathan's subordinate. 
Jonathan is the king's son. Jonathan was in a position to give David leave of absence in chapter 20 and to be held responsible for that same absence. David's subordinate position is also shown by the fact that he used deferential language to Jonathan in chapter 20. And the fact that David's name always followed Jonathan's whenever the two formed a compound also suggests David's subordinate status. Friendship is a commitment. And I think many of us today are either afraid of commitment or maybe we're even too lazy or indifferent to commit ourselves to another person. Because when we make a commitment, there is inherent risk. It involves us potentially getting disappointed. We risk getting hurt. But think with me. Before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, Jesus made a voluntary commitment to die on the cross. That was plan A. It was not plan B after man's fall. The Son of God pledged to become a man and to suffer on the cross for man's sin. Christian friendship makes commitment. Well, let's look at an eighth mark of Christian friendship. Christian friendship shows humility. Christian friendship shows humility. Look in verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. By taking off his royal robe, Jonathan recognized David was God's choice to become the next king. And we know this to be a fact because we'll read later, Jonathan tells David, don't be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is co-equal with God the Father. And yet God the Son humbled himself. He comes down from heaven and he willingly stripped his robe to serve. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is the beginning of the account of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. Let me just read the first few verses. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, listen to this, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments to take a towel. He tied it around himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. In the last supper, the last Passover, Jesus was the guest of honor. Even though the, the disciples made arrangements to find this, uh, this room, Jesus was the guest of honor. And so during this time, the guest of honor would sit at the head of the table. Uh, we think during this time, tables weren't 36 inches high it would be pretty much close to the ground. And so uh, the people would sit on the ground, but Jesus would sit at the head of the table. So when scripture reads, when Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his outer garment, he was coming from a position of authority and a position of honor. He was not co-equal with the disciples. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And many of you know that this task during the time of Christ was assigned to the lowest member of the household. If your, fa if your family could afford a slave or a servant, it would be the slave or servant that would wash the disciple or would wash the feet. But if you had no, you were too poor to have a slave or a servant, the lowest member of the family was assigned for feet washing. Paul writes that Jesus, although existing in the form of God, did not require or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you continue to read, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he takes off his outer garment, he washes the disciples' feet, he then sits back at the head of the table, and he puts his outer garment back on. The disciples didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand until later that this wasn't just an act uh, or an example of humility. This was a depiction that our Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven and took off his royal robe to, 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 to perform and to demonstrate the ultimate act of humility. Jesus says in, in a little while later to his disciples, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. A true friend is content and happy to be number two. He's willing to lay aside any and everything, even if he's in a position of a superiority, to be his friend's servant. Well, let's look at a ninth mark of Christian friendship. Ninth 
Mark, Christian friendship is generous. Christian friendship is generous. Look back at verse four. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Today, if a man harnesses the courage to propose to a woman, often he would obtain an engagement ring, usually with a precious stone, and place it on the woman's proper finger to signify his sincerity and his commitment to her. And during the time of Jonathan and David, it's similar that when a person makes a covenant, he will often give some sort of special gift or gifts. And so we see here that what Jonathan does is when he cuts that covenant, makes that covenant with David, Jonathan strips himself of his royal robe and he gives it to David. He is surrendering the royal throne to David But not only that, Jonathan also gives David his armor and his weapons. And I think this emphasizes all the more Jonathan's generosity. Understand that the best military weapons of the time 3,000 years ago, they weren't easily accessible. Right today, if we want to buy something, right, and you're like, "Oh, you've got something I want," you just, you know, go to Amazon or, <laughs> and then click, and then two days later, you know, someone has something, you have it too. Well, when it comes to the best military weapons, you can't just all of a sudden just ask someone to make you the best military weapon. Well, military weapons, uh, especially those that were the best. They, they're not easily replicated. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, it reads, Now it happened on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. So back in chapter 13, you had men willing to fight, but they didn't have the weapons. The only people that were stated to have weapons were Saul, King Saul, and his son, Jonathan. The Israelites didn't have weapons for everyone in their army during this time. And in fact, that's why it was so important that after the the victory between David and Goliath and the, the Israelites chased the Philistines all the way back to Gath and to Ekron, that it says that they plundered the camps of the Philistines, and probably one of the most important things that they plundered were their weapons. Remember what uh, it says that David, he, he decapitated the Philistines and he took the head of, of the Philistines and he put, but he put Goliath's weapons in his tent. So <laughs> David cut off Goliath's head kept Goliath's head, but the other thing that he takes are the weapons of Goliath. 
And later in chapter 21, David will need weapons again. And he asked for Goliath's sword and said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So it's not like there are 10,000 swords and Jonathan just gives one of 10,000. I assume here that Jonathan now, who is younger and more fit than his father uh, saw, he probably had the second best set of weapons, maybe even the best set of weapons. And so Jonathan spared no expense in his generosity. He gives David his royal robe. He divests his best weapons that not only could they not be easily replaced, but they leave Jonathan more vulnerable for future military battles. This comes at a cost. It leaves Jonathan more vulnerable. But Jonathan was so generous to David. Who is David? That Jonathan would divest all these gifts, cut this covenant. Well, let me give you a 10th mark of Christian friendship. Christian friendship promotes success. Christian friendship promotes success. Look at verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. Wherever King Saul sent David, David succeeded. Now, God had given David victory over Goliath without any weapons, right? He was offered weapons. He was offered Saul's weapons, remember, and military armor. But I'm still pretty sure that what Jonathan had given David, his armor and his weapons, did promote David's military success. In fact, David was so successful that you see here, he, David, was quickly promoted, right? It says here that Saul set him over the men of war and basically made David head of the army. We read back in chapter 17, verse 55, that it was Abner who was the commander of Saul's army. And now we see here that David has supplanted Abner in this role as Saul's top military commander. So Jonathan wanted nothing more than to see David succeed. Jonathan gave everything to David, his robe, weapons, unwavering support. And I think during this time, it would have been so important that the crown prince supported David. The fact that Jonathan supported David, preserved his reputation, even built up his reputation, allows what we read here that it was pleasing in the eyes of all the people and also in the eyes of Saul's servant. Well, in conclusion, I think you and I don't even have to read the Bible to understand that. Christian friendship, it is a precious gift from God. And because Christian friendship is so important for Christians, for all of us, I want to leave you with two words of encouragement. 
The first is this. Be a good friend. Now, I told you it, it is important to be selective, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. But I don't want you to worry so much or get discouraged about how your friends treat you. Like, <laughs> do you have good friends? But focus more on how you and I can grow in being a good friend. And to do that, just remember, friendships, they're unplanned. They're unexpected. They involve our inner self, our inner soul. Friendship requires love. They should be purposefully selected. They should seek others' good. They should shun envy. They require commitment. They demand humility. Friendship is generous. It promotes others' success. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. At the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew, it reads that Judas went to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed Jesus. And Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you have come for. If the main lesson that God gives us is how to choose our friends, that is important. But if that is preeminent, Jesus would have never chosen Judas to be disciple and friend. Part of this is that Jesus showed to the very end that he was willing to be a good friend even seconds before Judas betrays Jesus, calling Judas respectfully friend. Strive to be a good friend. And second, the second encouragement is this, know your best friend. Know your best friend. And your best friend, if you are a follower of Christ, is Jesus. If you don't know Christ Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, repent and call out to him today. Ask him to absolve your sins and to call you not a sinner, but a friend. Jesus says to us, you are my friend if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends. Let me just close by reading the first verse of a familiar hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Know your best friend. Let's pray.